Hi there. I want to talk to you about ducts. Do your ducts seem old-fashioned? Out of date? Central Service's new duct designs are now available in hundreds of different colours to suit your individual taste. Hurry now. While stocks last, your nearest Central Service has shown designer colours to suit your demanding taste. Central Services! Hello! I'm Randy Andrews, and today I've got Erica with me as we're going to be talking and discussing and going through this dystopian future society of Brazil. We will discuss the cast, the background, the technical aspects, and some of the very unknown facts on the film. It's all today on Soundtrack Alley. Erica, it's good to have you on the show again. I'm doing great today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Now, you know, today we're discussing a very interesting topic. This film called Brazil by Terry Gilliam. What are your thoughts on this film? <laughs> um, it is an interesting work. Uh, uh, I've been a big fan of Gilliam since I want to say probably 12 Monkeys, I think is the first time that I really remember his name. Uh, I mean, I was aware of Monty Python uh, prior to that, but like his name just wasn't kind of in my sphere at that time. So, I mean, 12 Monkeys isn't a great movie, but I enjoyed it as a teenager. It came out and it was weird and it was dark and it was different. Um, and I'm a big sucker for time travel. Uh, so that kind of got me into Terry Gilliam. Um, I really enjoy Gilliam's use of uncontrolled chaos. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of directors out there who are really good at doing controlled chaos. With Gilliam, I described his work as uncontrolled chaos. Like I feel like at any moment, things could just fall apart. The actors could fall apart. The set could fall apart. The lights and the camera might just fall apart. It's <laughs> like, I just feel like everything's being held together with like duct tape and silly putty. So yeah. that's kind of my, that's kind of my uh, take on Gilliam is it's always badness. It's always craziness. There's things that are happening and everything is on the verge of falling apart. And that is equally in, true in Brazil as most of his other work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Brazil really reminds me of like works of like 1984 or, um, Aldous, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, you know, very dystopian futures, um, some very grim, some very dark. Uh, but this one is a bit quirky. Um, <laughs> I think Brazil is one of the quirkiest dystopian movies I've ever seen. 
And uh, I hadn't heard of it for the longest time. And then I was listening to a podcast called The Morning Stream. And they were talking about the film Brazil in detail. And I was like, I really need to check this movie out. So eventually I found it at the library and watched it. And I was like, wow, this is quite a movie. So, <laughs> yeah. So uh, how about we get into talking about some of the, the cast aspects on the film? Like, what, are, what, is, what was the main draw for this film? do you think? Uh, for people going to see it in the theater? Yeah, yeah. What do you think? Hmm. I mean, I know they plugged Robert De Niro's name a lot at the time, although he's not in the film very much. Um, outside of that, I'm not sure. And I think yeah. that is that was a little part of their issue, is that, I mean, Gilliam's name wasn't big at the time uh not a lot of people knew most of the other actors and they just didn't know how to bill it so how they got people in to see it i do not know <laughs> mm-hmm. i yeah. know what the draw is to me i love science fiction i love dystopian futures i love all the you know madcap gilliam stuff but at the time i had no idea how they were trying to bill it to get an audience Yeah. And to me, I think one of the biggest draws that I noticed was Robert De Niro and Ian Holm being in the film. And I was like, oh, this is going to be great. And then every (laughs) time, every time I saw uh, Robert De Niro on screen, I smiled because he was like my favorite thing in the movie. And uh, he was like this duct terrorist superhero <laughs> you know what i mean mm. he had all his swoop in swoop in do a bunch of crazy stuff yeah out. Yeah. yeah like you know i mean terry gilliam he was really excited to have him on board and then they found that de niro's need for research and obsession with details grew kind of irritating and so gilliam wanted to strangle him at one point. So, but it was really interesting because Robert De Niro wanted to be Jack, um, the title role. And he had already promised, no, wait, no, because Jack was not the title role because it was Jonathan, Jonathan Price. Price yeah. That was the title yeah. role of Sam Lowry. But Jack... And who was Jack? He was uh, Michael he was, Palin. He was, yeah, he was the crazy doctor, the one that was actually killing people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so um, he ended up being Tuttle, which is the, you know, crazy superhero duct <laughs> terrorist guy. But he was great. Like, I mean, I think he really... <laughs> De Niro, he just can really command a scene, and he can be really silly. Like, I mean, have you ever seen um, Stardust? I have. Okay. I don't remember it super well, but I have seen it. He was in that, and he was hilarious in it because he was a pirate, but he was... He was like obsessed with like fashion and uh, everything, and at one point, he was dancing around in a tutu. 
So yes, that comes back to me just a little bit. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you know, he he could he could really do some obscure things to actually for the film. And like when they were appearing in 1985 on Good Morning America to promote the film. Um, Gilliam was struggling with the studio and the studio head, Sid uh, Scheinberg, he quit publicly. or qu- It says quite publicly, but I don't know. He was struggling with him. Yeah, okay. So De Niro, he didn't make very many television appearances, but agreed to help Gilliam out. And so he uh, joined the crew and um, he decided to help out with being in the film. And then um, thinking about uh, like all the stuff that was surrounding him, like uh, insisting on 25 to 30 takes for his character alone. That's kind of much, don't you think? I mean, uh, that is a lot. I mean, there's a few directors that do that, but you kind of know going into the film that is a director who does a lot of takes. Um, but yeah, Gilliam is not one of those people. He kind of sets it up. They give it a few tries and then they move on. So yeah, it was, it was a big struggle for them trying to get through having to deal with De Niro wanting to do it over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Two weeks. I mean, that's a long time for, taking on just like a few lines at a time. It's like, what, you want this to be a Oscar winning performance? <laughs> yeah, I believe he's just on screen. I want to say three different times. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. first scene is a little long, but those next two appearances are all very short. Mm-hmm. And it definitely wouldn't have needed two weeks to have filmed the five or six minutes that he was on the screen. Yeah, and then um, you look at, uh, what's his name? Bob Hoskins. He was only on screen once. Like, he only had a, a couple times. times. A couple oh, was he times, a couple yeah. times? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, because the first time they were coming into the apartment to work on the building, and then the second time they have his building or his room and apartment, like, completely tore apart with the... Mm. So... <laughs> Ducks is a big factor in this movie. <laughs> it's like, there is no doubt. So for the role of Jill, uh, Terry Gilliam had tested like a half a dozen different actresses. Um, Rosanna Arquette, which would have been an odd choice. Um, Ellen Barkin, Jamie Lee Curtis, Rebecca De Mornay, uh, Ray Dawn Chung. That would have been a weird one. Kelly McGillis. Joanna Pakula, Kathleen Turner, and even considered Madonna to be in the role. That would certainly be different, but his favorite was Barkin, and yet he later started um, with um, Kim Grease, and I believe she won the role, and, <laughs> and it wasn't like necessarily for like sex appeal, but her acting was really good for reading the lines and stuff like that. So I thought that was actually a pretty good spot on point for her. What do you think? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think from what we see of her on screen, I think she does a good job. 
Uh, I did read at one point that a lot of her part was cut out of the film. Uh, and I actually don't necessarily have a problem with that because she's kind of the fantasy of Sam, the main character. And I feel like if that, if her character Jill was in the film more, it kind of tarnishes the fantasy Mm -hmm. Uh, because this whole time he's chasing this imaginary person in his head and the more we see of the person the harder it is to see his fantasy um so i thought of you know what we saw of her i thought she did a pretty good job um yeah because she's yeah, kind some, of a jerk. some of those a little bit yeah yeah and some <laughs> of those other women that were tested um it's it all would have been just a very different film with any of those other women in that role <laughs> <laughs> yeah sam goes to jack lent which is michael palin the elevator in information retrieval goes up to floor 84. And that's kind of a nod to 1984. And when Gilliam was designing this script, he called the, <laughs> he called the film 1984 and a half because it was so obscure and he had never read the book. So he had no idea. All he knew was the ideas surrounding it, like the the imagery, the the whole um, I don't know, kind of kind of the concept of the story. Yeah, yeah, the concept of what it would be, and I found that really interesting because, like, you look at these different dystopian uh, like novels, like um, Brave New World. Have you read Brave New World? I have not. Okay. I'm aware of it. I know of it, but I've not actually read it. Yeah, it's actually, it's, it's like everyone in the book takes these drugs or not really drugs, but they're like potions or something to make them feel happy. And they want to feel happy and good all the time. Well, at a certain point in the book, they go to travel to where the natives are quote unquote. And, they bring one back with them. And he is like the observer in this society of weird, constant, happy people. And he is one that has survived with full emotions intact. And at one point he even falls in love with someone. But in the end, it's a very disturbing ending because it's dystopian, it's dark, and it makes you think. And I think that's really good to look at some of these dystopian viewpoints because even in Terry Gilliam's world of Brazil, things are not always happy. <laughs> that's true. I, I would say there's very few people in the film that are happy. <laughs> like his, his mother, Sam's mother is very happy, but I'm not, but she's just so lost inside her own surgery obsession and inside the culture of you know buying things and i don't think she would understand what it is not to be in that world so she just fully absorbed in it so from her perspective she's happy but there's mm -hmm. very few other people in the film that are happy in any sense yeah and with jonathan price playing sam he is like that he's almost like a fixer you know because like in the beginning, Ian Holm is calling for him, trying to help have him solve something. And he's kind of a fixer. He's kind of one of those people that is trying to help others out in a way. 
and uh, things just kind of go kind of screwball for him throughout the film. And then he becomes obsessed with finding uh, the girl of his dream and finding out that she's actually a real person. And it, it, you know, it changes like the whole, I don't know, the whole structure of the film. And do you think it, it turns into more of a roller coaster than a straight journey? Uh, definitely, yeah. I mean, in his job, he's happy being a nobody and showing up to work. If his boss wants help, he'll go help his boss because he's smarter than his boss. His boss has no idea what's going on, which is the Ian Holm character. Um, but he doesn't want promotions. He doesn't want more uh, he doesn't want to get more experience. He doesn't want more responsibility. He wants nothing. He just wants to sit and be in the same little boring box as what, what he's in. And he's happy with that. And that chance instant where he sees the girl on the screen, thinks how much she looks like the fantasy girl in his dream. And that's kind of what sets him off. Uh, yes. On his roller coaster and everything that he does in the film is to either find her or meet her or help her in some way. So yeah, he's just a, don't bother me. I just want to sit in my little cubicle and uh, ends up going on a journey, which he was definitely not expecting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I think Jonathan Price really pulled off this role really well. And he's a, he's a really good actor. I, I like him in anything I've seen him in. And he's just, he's a type of person that you can continue to watch on screen. Like, you know, he's an interesting character. He's an interesting actor to watch. And I think that's what draws me into his thoughts is to, to understand where he's going with, you know, everything that's going around him. And uh, go ahead. And, and I'm, I'm a little bit of a theater snob. And I will say that because he has such a heavy theater background, that's it, it, for me, I can always see an actor with a theater background on screen because they have a very different physicality to them. Um, not saying that people who've only done film aren't good. Some of them are very good. But having a theater background, you just have very different uh, your gestures are different. The way you respond to the camera is different. The way you talk to other actors is different. Uh, and he, yeah, like I, like you said, I think he did a wonderful job. And physically, he's just so weird. The whole film um, is character is strange and his interpretation of the character is strange but it's wonderful to watch like he's kind of snively at times and other times he's running after trucks and it's like well you <laughs> think is he snively or is he the guy who would chase after trucks and he does both of them and he does both of them well and yeah. sometimes he's cowering and other times he goes you know uh, goes to do the right thing and it's like he goes to extremes very well and in every scene you just can't take your eyes off him like in the scenes that Robert De Niro is in, you're always watching him. Every time, you know, Jonathan Price is doing something, your eyes are just fixed on him because physically in the set, the very bizarre, very fantastical set, your eyes are still drawn to John Jonathan Price the entire time. Mm -hmm. And you follow him on his journey. So, okay. So some of the things that I'd like to cover for this um, episode are in regard to Terry Gilliam's fight to actually get this film made. Um, 
you know, we, we talk about some of the elements of the film and uh, I might turn it over to you to ask you, you know, how was the trouble that Terry Gilliam found out, you know, through trying to get this film made? What, what troubles did he have? Uh, as far as getting it made, I don't know a lot. Um, I know that he did uh, ship or like the movie just around. Yeah, it. like for his biggest problem was distribution. But as mm -hmm. far as getting it made, um, I know he brought the story to a lot of different places, a lot of different companies, and they all said this is ridiculous and it's crazy and we want nothing to do with it um so how he got this one uh you know production company to actually pick it on was pretty impressive um his issues happened by the time filming was wrapping up because i think he had to have the film under something like two hours and five minutes or something along those lines mm -hmm. and his first cut was like almost three hours and then he cut it down to like 215 220 and he was still over whatever his allotment was and when you sign a contract that says it will be under two hours and five minutes if you turn in two hours and 12 minutes you're running a risk of not getting paid of not getting the film completed of not getting it distributed like you go oh it's only seven minutes well when, yeah. when you sign on that little dotted line it doesn't really matter um so that was an issue the film was weird it was dark it has a dark ending um nobody really understood what was going on like all these weird fantastical things are happening um so and he and he he had to fight just on and on and on to actually get the film out like once he had it completed um so he did a lot of screenings um illegally he i believe <laughs> stole stole a print of the film at one point and started screening it which is really not okay to do um when there's another company that actually owns the film he got some film critics to view it and once uh popular opinion started picking up the film critics started writing good things about it he kind of forced the hand of the production company and they ended up putting out the version that he wanted um so he kind of won that little battle but it did kind of sour him as far as other production companies and he had a lot more troubles after that because everybody knew he kind of forced the hand of the company that he was with yeah that's a really excellent way of explaining that whole situation <laughs> um, because it went back and forth, you know, I mean, he went back and forth and he even, oh, he had to go to another country and it, it appeared in another country before it even went to the U S and in the other country, it was actually like well received. And I mean, uh, one of the things in my notes was talking about, let's see, um, he showed it to film critics in L.A. and they declared it the best film of the year. I mean, it won some Oscars, um, which is very unusual. And uh, it's ironic because it gave the film's themes of an individual standing up to the system. And the only difference is, Lowry lost and Gilliam of course won but that's just a really interesting thing but it's actually a, a like a documentary type thing that's recounted by Jack Matthews uh, in 1987 and so um, there's more 
information regarding that. But uh, some of these lesser known things, nobody would have ever really thought about that he had such a struggle with actually getting the film made. Um, so one of the things I wanted to take note of, this is something that's in the movie throughout the movie. Um, just one song that is highlighted through the whole film, and that's Brazil. Um, it's a variation of that main melody of the song of Brazil. And what do you think about that? Do you think it tells a higher story uh, by having that song like weaved through the movie? <laughs> um, I always kind of like repeating motifs. So I enjoyed it every time I heard it, it would kind of pop up. You kind of hear it in the background and sometimes it was in the orchestra and sometimes it was in a different instrument and it just kind of pop up and it didn't really follow a particular character. I know a lot of characters tend to have themes. They didn't quite do that. It just sort of popped in and out at different times in the script. Um, and then we, of course, got it at the end as well. Uh, so I enjoyed it. Um, it. It just kind of, it always kind of reminded you of what movie you're watching. Uh, mm -hmm. The song is called Brazil, the movie is Brazil, and it was sort of this repeated thing, um, which was sort of like his dream. It was his repeated, whether you want to call him a, a warrior angel or whatever you want to call that fantasy <laughs> world, it was yeah. sort of this repeated thing that you would kind of see, and that's sort of what was driving him. Uh, so the repeated music, you know, musical notes, it wasn't always exactly the same, but it was sort of following him it was sort of with him and it was sort of leading him sort of depending on where it was in the movie uh, so i enjoyed it every time that it popped up mm -hmm. i did too and i like that uh, according to the notes that i had the dream sequence which is throughout the film was originally supposed to be one long sequence and actually shown as a full thing but um they had changed it and cut it up to where, you know, it's, it's kind of intermixed throughout the whole uh, movie. And it, it kind of makes sense, but some of it doesn't make sense <laughs> because they cut it up. So. Yeah. I, I actually like that they cut it up um, for a couple of reasons. One as I said, it, it kind of sort of just like the musical motif, it sort of pops in and out of the story. So you can kind of see, let's say his, his grasp of reality is slowly slipping. Mm -hmm. And you can see that in some of the fantasy sequences are directly mirrored to some of the real sequences. So us as the audience, we're pretty aware visually of when we're in a fantasy world, but we can tell that he is not always clear. Sometimes he is not sure, is he in the real world? Is he in the fantasy world? And we see him sort of go back and forth. So I like it from that aspect that he's always kind of struggling, staying inside the real world and not getting lost in his fantasy. Um, but it's also a huge plot point uh, for him seeing the girl on the screen, for him seeing Jill. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't until the middle of the movie that we saw all the fantasy sequences, we wouldn't really understand why him seeing this woman's face on a screen, why that changes his trajectory. Like we needed to have seen his fantasy to understand this 
you know, recurring dream that he has. And this woman looks just like her. Like we needed to have seen that to understand why his whole life derails because of that. Oh yeah, definitely. Cause I mean, it just, it, it skewers strangely (laughs) and it, it results like it also reminds me like there's scenes where he has to get a form signed and it's like, wow, this is like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where you have to get tons of approvals for this form, this one form to be done. <laughs> and it's just, you know, it's really interesting. And then I, I found it interesting also that in 2013, Terry Gilliam called this movie Brazil Uh, being the first installment of a dystopian satire trilogy that it forms with 12 monkeys in the Zero Theorem. Have you ever seen the Zero Theorem? I have not. Neither have I. I don't know what it's like. Um, I'd have to look it up to actually figure out what that is because I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, but 12 monkeys in Brazil... uh, I like both of them, but they're both very different. So I'm oh, yeah. curious to know where in a quote unquote trilogy where the zero theorem would kind of fit like thematically with the other two. Mm-hmm. Cause I mean, 12 monkeys even doesn't have a good ending. <laughs> Cause it's actually kind of like a repeating, uh, it's like a time loop, you know, the whole movie is a time loop. Because yeah, he never—it's one—it's one, it's one loop, and which is already closed. Like it's a mm-hmm. loop that you can't open and change anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what makes that movie pretty interesting. I, I like it, um, and I like uh, Brad Pitt's role in that film. <laughs> but that is for another time. So, <laughs> uh, I like how with um, the sound effects used on the computer terminals. They're identical to those of the, uh, let's see, the computer for the Nostromo in Alien. And ironically, Ian Holm appears in both of those films. So, and he, he's, I, I like his character too, as being the kind of the bumbling boss and has to call for Lowry at certain points and, be like i don't know what i'm doing mm, yeah so. <laughs> and then uh what do you think of the whole um central services and the ministry and the uh like um information retrieval <laughs> do you think it represents any form of government or um yeah i mean he uh, Gilliam very famously says that all of his, although we refer to this movie as a dystopian future movie, he, he's always very adamant that his films are always very much of their time. Um, so yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of different elements of real world, whether we're talking the mid eighties or we're talking now, there's always correlations that you can draw um, between things. Um, having to, uh, renew your driver's license 
<clears throat> you stand at this window, sorry, you need this other document. You go to a different document, a different window. Oh, sorry, you needed this other paper from the other window to sign here and then bring it back. And then you have to play <laughs> that sort of thing. Like we yeah. understand mm -hmm. and we watch it and laugh, but we understand what it's like being stuck in that in that sort of situation um uh people who are obsessed with surgery and having the right clothes and looking a certain way and are very much trapped inside their own little bubble i think we can all relate to that whether that's oh, yeah. us or that's people that we know um, so yeah i think there's there's definitely correlations that you can draw in pretty much any time period yeah most definitely and i like i i like some of the names that are given in this movie like the Ministry of Information or the Security Police. And, uh, you know, a lot of this, like when Harry, which is Robert De Niro, rescues Sam from the Ministry of Information, they escape through a lobby. The security police walk in unison down the stairs and in a single fire or a single rank firing their guns. All the while, there's a vacuum cleaner rolling down the stairs ahead of one step at a time and it's i guess an homage to battleship potemkin which is from 1925 and the massacre of the cossacks of the people of the odessa steps while a baby carriage rolled unharmed down the steps in the middle of the ensuing ensuing carnage now is that a reference to like something that happened during um, the time of Al Capone or not? Mm, trying to think what year was Al Capone? Was he in the 20s? Well, he was in the 20s and 30s. So, I mean, yeah, I mean I'm, I'm from, yeah, I'm familiar 34, with the film. But, 34, yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it is very reminiscent of that scene from Battleship Potemkin. Um, okay. Soldiers, soldiers marching in unison, that baby carriage slowly going down the stairs. Um, so yeah, I can definitely see that. Um, but yeah, I mean, really, anytime throughout history where you see large masses of soldiers, you want to talk about Nazi Germany, you know, large yep. ma masses of soldiers always doing everything in unison. Um, yeah, I think Gilliam was going just kind of i think everybody kind of took a different interpretation as to that some oh yeah people are yeah. thinking some some people are thinking nazis something people are thinking you know revolutionary times where everybody had those big mm -hmm. huge long rifles and you would walk <laughs> in a line yeah. shoot walk in a line shoot so yeah there's just there's there's many references throughout time where soldiers have walked like that um and it's it's a little bit scary because you know groupthink takes over and you know mm -hmm. that they're just going to walk around and just start shooting like they're not thinking anymore <laughs> yeah. Yeah. all they're doing is shooting like it's very robotic um mm -hmm. and one of the themes of throughout the film is you know humans uh are no longer considered important like you're just you're literally a number like all yeah. you are is your designation you're not even like a real person so soldiers walking in line and just shooting and they don't care who they hit uh, <laughs> that's that certainly applies in some situations today and it is just very very frightening yeah and also like you know it's a it's a very thinking piece you know i mean even though the, it's a very fantastical weird uh society it it makes you think on certain things that actually happen um I really liked the sets in this film. Um, the, like, 
even though there were so many things in it that were just so disorganized and like <laughs> like our example of the ducks on the building <laughs> i mean you know we keep coming back to those ducks uh the office buildings the residential blocks they're done up with these gray tones and brutish outlines and um like even the restaurants have kind of this shabbiness to them and yeah. uh, i love how gilliam makes everything look dirty and ju and just dirty it doesn't even even if the place is clean and there's gray edges in buildings they still look dirty like he just has this thing where he doesn't want things looking clean and pristine um and like about the fantastical way he works production design i always kind of think of his films as i feel like i'm watching a live action cartoon because you don't see that sort of style very often in live action films, but you see that a lot in cartoons, weird angles, random things swinging through scenes that shouldn't be swinging through scenes. One scene is all gray, the next scene is all colorful. So yeah, it's just, it's, it's like watching a live action cartoon for me. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. That's a good comparison. Um, <laughs> and uh, another thing that gets me is that Brazil reminds me kind of of the steampunk type um examples of what we see in some some cinema you know films and then coming up fairly soon within the next i think this year is uh mortal engines and that is actually like a quadrilogy of different films that actually are like um i mean they all connect but they're all steampunkish you know they they all have that gears and you know steam and robots and things like that <laughs> that aren't aren't exactly robots that somehow are actually able to move around and they're powered and you know you don't know how and that it's steampunk so you you accept it and it's it's like it's mid 20th century technology you know it's like if, and I love this comparison that it said in my notes, it said if there was an iPad in it, it would probably have wheels and run off a tank of diesel. And everyone is dressed like it's 1943. And against this bizarre backdrop, uh, it's a simple story of a man and one woman's uh, struggle against a totalitarian government. That's the thought I was trying to make that the film is kind of like it's this totalitarian like you know everyone has to be the same <laughs> so it's kind of fun um, but let's see there's there's one thing that I wanted to cover in here there's like questions that people have wondered about regarding the film like different details and uh, like one of the questions that many people were asking was what is the significance of the ducks? Now, Roger Ebert, who didn't like Brazil, took Gilliam to task for his bizarre obsession with those. And even the most positive results uh, show that the ducks primarily are a symbol of technology gone wrong. 
and the state present everywhere that it's a substantial fashion. And like the commercial at our beginning of our show, that it's curious to see that these ducks disfigure like buildings and where people are and like even come into these luxurious places such as restaurants and uh, homes and uh, they're these massive giant air ducts that are like browned and obscure and you know they're just clearly out there but it just it makes a point that they're part of the story and the only space in the movie that doesn't have ducks is the mobile home that Jill is tugging away at the end of the story, which is hilarious. So what do you think of that? Um, yeah, I have a few ideas on the ducks. Um, one of Go them, uh, as you said, I will, thank you. <laughs> one of them, as you said, is they're very industrial. Um, they're in all the buildings. You see them everywhere. Buildings, in restaurants, in people's houses. You see them in alleys. Like, they're just everywhere. Sometimes they're electrical. Um, sometimes they're, you know, HVAC, you know, heating and AC. Sometimes they're water and sewage. Um, you never really quite know what's in them. So they're a little bit mysterious. Um, also, that shape is sort of like snakes and worms. and people in general, don't like snakes and worms. So seeing those great big snaky shapes kind of makes people uncomfortable. So that's kind of an extra layer, especially when you're walking through a restaurant and one is like swinging right over your head and you have to like duck yeah. to get under them. So just like their visual aspect, uh, people don't necessarily like very much. Um, and in the story, um, they're sources of power. That's also how people send messages is through some of those ducks. So the fact that they're everywhere and you don't know what's in them makes them very mysterious and it makes people uncomfortable not knowing what's in them. Mm -hmm. They're making a strange noise. Well, what is it? Are there cables in there? Is there sewage in there? Is that <laughs> just a message being sent to someone? So yeah. I, I think he was playing with a lot of different things sources of power industrial they're strange and creepy and they make weird noises and they're just everywhere so you're just feeling like you're suffocated by them mm -hmm. yeah that's a really good point um another thing is why does the ministry of information uh hunt down freelance heating engineers um when we understand the importance of the ducks in the movie you can understand why the ministry is touchy about people not employed by central services, that they're actually messing with the ductwork. And I, I thought it was funny that although it's Christmas, the ducks, despite their being the ugliest part of any space, they're not decorated. They're, there's not no garland, there's no wrapping, there's no lights on them. Uh, it's a testament to how strict the rules are that no one should touch the ducks. <laughs> and the ministry's preoccupation with Harry Tuttle, which is the guy that gets killed in the beginning, seems absurd, but people who know their way around the ducks can inter or intercept information and disrupt that business just as easily as fixing someone's air conditioning. And so that's why there's the central services. So I thought that was... Really interesting. Mm -hmm. And 
what about like why is Sam obsessed with old music? Do you think? Uh, nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's really everybody in the film. Uh, there's what the cowboy movie. I think everybody was watching at the beginning. Every time the boss opened the door, they would go back to work, and he'd close the door, and they start watching the cowboy movie again. And on the second day, I believe it was Casablanca. Um, just being at work and just watching Casablanca on your screen. So just nostalgia. Mm-hmm. old movies old music um we always think oh it was better back then like you're just always memories of childhood memories of things that happened before um you tend sometimes you do but you tend to not think about the bad things when you're kind of looking over large periods of time you always kind of focus on the good things and so yeah just sentimental oh back then was a better time happiness childhood uh yeah those yeah, from the movies and the music, that just seemed why everybody was obsessed with that. Kind of trying to get themselves out of their current existence because yeah. they hate it so much. So it was kind of their <laughs> fantasy looking at all this old stuff that had happened before. Oh, yeah, most definitely. And, you know, there it's everyone. And so, like, even today, you know, we live in a world where Americans are subject to a different type of degree of surveillance you know big brother um and then like i thought it was interesting one of the questions that it asked was does anyone actually read all those billions of emails that we get you know do you i don't i read a few of them that actually not a lot yeah (laughs) it's like i i read a few but yeah, the majority of them we discard, you know, we throw away. It's like a digital trash can. So, yeah, I mean, you know, even today we think about those implications of what uh, a film like Brazil would actually do. So why don't we start talking about some of the score aspects of the film? Um, We know that the film is actually... Uh, scored by Michael Kamen. Now, what do you know Michael Kamen from? I know his name, but I don't, other than looking him up, I don't have any idea off the top of my head what else he's done. Well, two of, actually, three of the things that actually come to my mind is Die Hard, uh, the first movie, um, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, because it was drilled into my head in ninth grade <laughs> and um, Lethal Weapon. So, so those are three movies that actually stand out to me that were Michael Kamen scores. Yeah, big action stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Michael Kamen is a very, um, it's surprising, but he's a very chaotic composer. Um, there was someone that was interviewed on Cinematic Sound Radio, and they were talking about how um, chaotic his music is and how he would like change things in the middle of his recording or, you know, say, all right, we're going to do it this way. And he would have this very like kind of obsessive thing. Uh, he would have this obsessive thing with music in general. And so some people couldn't work with him. 
because of how unusual his style was. But one of the things that I noted about Michael Kamen's music for Brazil was that he kept with that central theme of how you have the and it's like throughout the whole score you know you you get it with different parts of it um even uh listening to it uh people wanting something very dreamlike and yet they also get this like dark and interesting political score too because it's got these like at the very beginning you hear the typewriters and it almost is like that same theme but it's to typewriters which is interesting so um what do you think about like the score itself uh uh in general i enjoyed it um i liked the the repeated motif as we've talked about that just kind of pops up here and there <clears throat> uh i like the frenetic energy of a few of the different scenes you know chase stuff uh, uh trucks going down the road and all you know horns horns from the vehicles and horns in the orchestra kind of mingling together um and as you said chaotic uh when he when he goes for some of the chaotic stuff it is very chaotic and to be chaotic in a Terry Gilliam piece means you're really, really chaotic for, yeah. for the yeah. chaos to stick out. Um, so yeah, I thought when he had to go chaotic, he really went chaotic. Uh, when he was going for that repeated motif, he did a great job of almost like a dream. It would just sort of come in and it would play and then it would go back out. Um, and then other times we got, big full orchestra music and it was just really interesting how he was able to mix all that stuff together yeah and even with like the dream sequence itself you know that's very it, it's very dreamlike it's it's got different colors it's it it has that gray tones to it but it also has a lot of light that comes down and you know and we have our hero of sam lowry and he's in his armor and he's fighting things or trying to get to this woman and there's elements of you know the darkness but then there's this light as well you know he that he's he's wanting to reach but he never gets there so i i, I like that and then um i thought it was different um with like barroso who did the um version of brazil that the original lyrics um they they cover like impressionistic you know how brazil is like romanticized and it's a vision of homeland and it exists seemingly only within the words themselves and in the images and feelings they provoke and then in the english version um, the song's association with the film with the dreams in which Sam finds he's seeking refuge from the outside world that he attempts to imagine himself out of a waking world and not only offers him little but within which he appears unwilling to orient himself to this world around him and I just I found it really interesting 
you know, the interpretations that they had regarding the melody itself and how it changes, um, how, you know, how we, we follow uh, Sam Lowry on this journey through the score. And I really like that. And like you had brought out about the frenetic energy and how chaotic it could get uh, with him, like getting into the truck and like some of the scenes are very exciting. You know, you, you really are rooting for his character and be like, yes, yes, go, go. And you know, you're, you're with him, you're, you're going with him and, and you're like, okay, let's see where this is going. And, and then all of a sudden it changes and Michael Kamen does an excellent job in just like halting that music and altering it right away. Am I describing it pretty well? Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. I like his, uh, yeah. Like you said, chase scene, chase, 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 sort of random pause. And then like a, <laughs> a flute will come in and then it's back to a chase scene. And it's somehow he just kind of flows everything together and it, it, like we've been saying that just kind of represents Sam because he's just sort of this dorky guy who's doing his job who doesn't want to you know do anything beyond what he's doing who decides to chase after this woman and everything that he has to deal with is very very much uh, reflected back in the music yeah yeah so so let's go ahead and talk about the few cues that I'd like to play for the score um, some of them are, are somewhat short, but uh, with the increasingly populated theme that is in the film, I, I think that these really can represent a great majority of the music that creates this dreamlike film that is rather, you know, rather than the dystopian. But like, first I want to play um, Central Services, The Office. Uh, Waiting for Daddy and Sam Lowry's Wetter Dream monoliths erupt, which I'm not quite sure what that means. And then um, Truck Drive. And Erica, what do you think of these cues? Uh, I thought they were fun. Um, the central services at the beginning, nice big open notes are big and bright. But as we've said, there's still kind of that rigid gray structure sort of below those big, you know, bright, happy notes. Um, just kind of a really good indication of, you know, the world that they're living in. Um, waiting for Daddy is that romantic jazzy saxophone, which you would think, how in the world does that fit in here? And it works <laughs> perfectly well. It's kind of fun. It kind of makes you sit up and think, what in the world is about to happen? Like why the saxophone music uh, is jumping in there? So that's always fun. Uh, just kind of feeling it come out of nowhere. And then truck drive, like we said about the car, uh, car chase big, huge noises, um, horns, horns, truck horns, uh, brass horns, like all this stuff just sort of mingling. You sort of feel like you're driving in the car with them. And like you can feel like the big long turns and you can feel the drivers like seeing a vehicle coming in your lane and honking your horn and desperately trying to get out of the way. Like you can feel all of that stuff in the music. So you're kind of, you're Sam driving, but you're also the other cars and you're the vehicle like desperately trying to stay on the road. So it was just sort of a, this sort of madcap 
chaos <laughs> that you just it, that that is a Gilliam film, and somehow the music is just right there with everything. Yeah, yeah. And one note, you know, if people are not familiar with Terry Gilliam's work, I mean, he did the film Time Bandits. He did uh, The Adventures of Baron Muchenhausen. Is that right? Muchenhausen, I believe. Muchenhausen, yeah. yeah. And then he did uh, The Imaginarium of... uh, Dr. Parnassus. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Parnassus and Twelve Monkeys. And I mean, he's done a quite a a different rate of films <laughs> yeah and he and he worked with uh, all the guys on a lot of the monty python stuff as well so mm-hmm. yeah and there's some there's some disorganized chaos for you as well <laughs> <laughs> most definitely so let's go ahead and play those cues
right, so next um, we've got the elevator, Jill Brazil Power Station, and Ducting Dream. Um, what I noticed right away is the very dreamy type of music, and then it switches to this erratic, imperceptible chaos that results in the ducting dream. What do you think of these? Uh, yeah, I definitely liked the last one, Ducting Dream, the best. Um, it's For me, it felt like a musical fight between the dream and the nightmare. And you got both of them. Well, it started out in the dream, and then it slowly slips into the nightmare, and then you can actually feel it going back and forth between the two. Um, and no matter how hard he tries, he always ends up back in the nightmare, which is very much <laughs> what happens to him, poor guy, in the movie. Yeah. Um, there's a really nice uh, oboe solo at the end, which is kind of sad and kind of lonely. And uh, felt like it was sort of carrying on the memory of the nightmare that he had survived, um, but was still sort of like, you know, the monkey sitting on his back that he just, he didn't mm -hmm. quite fully escape from. So yeah, yeah definitely liked Ducting Dream. All right. So let's uh, go ahead and play that.
So sadly, we've come down to another end of Soundtrack Alley. Now, with this film, I've really found that even with the ending to the movie, as dark and odd that, you know, you, you, you're still not quite sure that this is all really happening. You know, I mean, because he's singing in the end, he's singing the theme of Brazil at the very end, but you're not, you're still not quite sure that it's actually happening. Even with the uh, strange baby mask that they give the, mm-hmm. the characters at the end. Um, what do you think of that? Uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, I know like the producers and Gilliam fought constantly at the end about, well, between all the other things they were mad about Gilliam about, but also just how terrible and dark the ending was. And he was ordered multiple times to change it and he refused. Um, They did, I believe, do a couple screenings with an ending that they changed themselves and every single one of those screenings the audience said that they hated the ending so (laughs) in the end they went with the one that gilliam had put together um i have no problem with dark endings i know Mm -hmm. some people are not happy about that like going to the theater and going to see a movie is supposed to be fun and uplifting and kind of escape from your life so you don't like to have an unhappy ending but uh you know i I mean i kind of enjoyed it not that i enjoyed him going insane at the end but uh (laughs) but you can kind of say well he did sort of end up in his dream place which Mm -hmm. he escaped to all the time anyways and he ended up with his girl Mm -hmm. um is that better than him being a fully functioning human probably not yeah. um but uh this is gilliam's world and that's kind of what we're left with <laughs> yeah no you're totally right so um so for closing out our show um i'd like to thank alexander shebel for soundtrack alley's intro theme um and so To close, I'll be playing The Morning After, Escape, uh, The Battle, Mother's Funeral and Forces of Darkness, Escape, and No Escape. Now, these really show the dystopian feel to this movie. Um, It gives us the grim reality, almost a grittiness to the the dreamlike world that we're living in with Brazil. Now, Erica, what do you think of these? Uh, I enjoyed that for a lot of these tracks here coming up, we get a lot of the big, full breadth of the orchestra sounds. Um, for the first one, The Morning After, it was kind of a nice melodic change. We, it was almost like listening to a music box at times. And we kind of think, uh, you know, associate that with, you know, childhood and any innocence. So that was kind of an interesting little change up. And then a little later on, the battle and mother's funeral, um, big, huge, brash orchestra sounds, crashing cymbals that would kind of crest in and out of passages. Uh, that was always interesting. Uh, climactic moments. Um, and then just chaos. Dark. It was always dark. There's very little, uh, I mean, chords, of course, you know, resolve themselves for the most part, not always for the most parts, but just very dark. Um, and a lot of different instruments got to shine at different moments, which kind of added 
to the chaos is, you know, flutes would come up here and strings would come up here and you would hear, you know, wind instruments and in uh, timpanis and crashes. And, oh, just, yeah. you know, every, everybody kind of was able to throw in their little voices um, mm -hmm. all while sort of crushing you in the darkness. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. Exactly. Right. You're right. You're so right. So, Erica, where can people find you? Uh, yeah, best place is my website, which is ericachristie.com. And there you can find pretty much all of my social media handles. All right. And then um, you can find me at soundtrackalley.net, um, Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, um, other podcast areas. Um, also, you can email me at soundtrackalley at yahoo.com. I'm on Twitter at randallenders1. And until next time, stay positive and happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take the time to review my podcast on iTunes or even listen to it on Podbean. With your review, it helps me get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Has anybody seen Sam Lowry? Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Also, if you want to leave a comment, question, or concern, please email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com and enjoy looking at my blog at soundtrackalley.com. Soundtrack Alley.